Yes, you are. Okay. I'm glad you've got your your um the passage printed out, so you can refer to that. And I've actually um, printed out also. We've had printed out the um uh, the sort of the outline of the talk. And so if you want to take notes, that would be great. If you don't, just sit back and listen. That's, that's fine. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had this experience, but, you know, as a child, I used to wonder what if, if I could imagine life from somebody else's perspective. But I couldn't. I was Leslie... I wasn't Ramsay then. I was Leslie Ball. Um, and no one else was Leslie Ball. I was the only one. Who was that person? And I wasn't the person behind my friend Jeanette's eyes or my, my brother Greg's eyes. I was Leslie. So all I could do was look out at the world from my eyes. And it was enormous. It was monumental. It was vast. When you're a little child, you know, the world is huge, isn't it? I lived in a, a little house in a little suburb in, a, in the middle of a large city here in Sydney in this vast continent of Australia, but really, you know, I was insignificant when, you know, sorry, oh, it's, Australia is really quite insignificant when you think it's against the rest of the continents. We weren't that important. And I was just one insignificant speck of a girl in a population of billions. And I lived at one point in the sweep of human history that stretched millions of years. And you know, my brain literally hurt as I tried to take that in. So it occurred, what, what was it all about? What is life all about? Is life just a, a petri dish of random people encountering arbitrary events, a series of unconnected experiences? Do we get born and live and work and play and then die? Is life just a great cosmological joke? Well, I don't know whether you remember, some of you will, um, a movie called Love Actually. Uh, it, uh, and they thought that, no, life was not random. So Hugh Grant, who was the main character uh, who plays the British Prime Minister in this movie, he says, if you look for it, I've got a sneaking suspicion that love actually is all around. Love is what makes the world go round. So here's the question. Is love actually at the heart of life? Going to Sydney today and the last month and continuing on to next week and everyone will tell you it's all about love. It's all about love. Is that what life is all about? See, in that movie, Love Actually, love is a relationship. That's what the equality is. It's love equals a relationship. But, you know, hardly any of the ten couples in that movie are in a monogamous, committed, happy relationship. None of them. Their view of love is actually very self-centred. What will make me feel good? What will make me happy? Where will I experience great sex? Love Actually is me, actually. <laughs> so here's another question. It's the, rest, it's the question we're going to wrestle with today. It's a question that I want us to think about. What is life, actually? 
What is life all about? What is at the very core of life? What is it about? You ask most women out there in the, in the community and they'll say that life is about happiness, a good relationship with a great man, a satisfying career with uh, well-adjusted kids, enough money to buy and do what I want to. Uh, for many women, it's independence and choice. That's what life is all about for them. Now, how do we describe those answers? <laughs> They're basically self-referencing, aren't they? Focused on my disease, my needs, my desires. But then... We are Christians, and that's not a picture of us. Our lives and hopes are focused somewhere else. They're focused on God. But I do wonder sometimes whether we are any different, whether I'm any different. So how do we answer the question, what do you want out of life? So here are some answers. I want God to provide all my needs for a comfortable lifestyle. I want God to keep suffering out of my life. I want God to come through for me and, and uphold me when times get tough. I want God to keep forgiving me and offering his grace to me when I fail. I want God to help my kids pass their exams all the time. I want God to help me be happy. I want God to heal me when I'm sick. So if we're, if we're in that sort of realm then I think we suffer from the same problem. We are basically self-referencing, focused on me, my needs, my desires. And we assume that we are at the centre of the universe. Now, it's easy to assume that because that is humanity's core problem, isn't it? We are sinful people. It's like, um, it's like looking through a microscope at something very small and the microscope makes it, look, makes it look huge, of massive importance. You know those um, forensic-type shows on TV and they put something under the microscope and they look at it and these little things are big and crawling around and bacteria or blood cells or whatever. And it's like we put ourselves under the microscope and we look big and important. And then we take a pair of binoculars and look through the wrong end. We look through the, the big ends and with the little bits out here. And what is of momentous proportions, God seems far away and, and, and insignificant. Yes, he's God. And we'll come to church three out of four Sundays. But, but look at how important my needs are. We've got it the wrong way around. We need to take the binoculars and turn them around and see God for who he is. Bring him up close. When we come to the Bible, we're, com we're confronted with a, a totally different picture. It's God and the Lord Jesus who are big and take up the whole picture, who fill the frame, not us. It's God and his plan that are at the centre of the universe. It's God and his plan that is life, actually. Well then, how do we fit in? What is the relationship between this big God and us? How does his plan impact us? What is life actually? Well, Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, 
It's one of the great purple passages of the New Testament. It's jam-packed full of ideas, as you you know, could see as you read it out, as we read through it today. Um, verses 3 to 14 uh, in, in the original language is actually one long sentence of 202 words. Wow. Um, I've written a few books um, over the last couple of years and I cannot imagine writing a 202-word sentence. I would never do that, but Paul does. Um, Now, it's really not an ordered argument, but it's just an explosion of praise to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he just breaks out in this great long, this long sentence of praise and blessing to, to, to Jesus. Um, and the words and ideas just come tumbling out. And it gives us this amazing picture of who God is and what he's done for us and our relationship with him. So let's jump in and see uh, what this is all about. So uh, it's a letter from Paul the apostle to the saints in Ephesus. Saints does not mean pious people, but it's Paul's regular description of ordinary Christians, people like you and me. So we're the saints. You're the saints in Marsfield. That's who you are. Now, what is your greatest blessing? I want to ask you, how do you view blessings? What blessings do you thank God for? Tell the person next to you. What blessings do you thank God for? Quickly, just something. What's a blessing you thank God for? You know, when I hear people talk about their blessings, they talk of uh, the blessing of good health, um, uh, the blessing of a new car, a new house, the blessing of a fine day when they want to go for a picnic. I talk that way. I say, what a great blessing from God this is. I often thank God for the blessing of a car space when I'm looking for one in the middle of air and affair. And, you know, they are blessings from God. Every good thing comes from the hand of God. And we should thank God for them. Uh, my pastor couple of weeks ago who he was in hospital with bacterial pneumonia very sick and when he his first sermon back he thanked God for the blessing of sickness and people went whoa how can you say that but for him that sickness was a good thing it was from the hand of God because it stopped him in his tracks and made him think about life But if they are the only things that come to mind, you know, the blessings of a fine day or a car space or a lovely house, if they're the only things that come to mind, we've got a very small view of God and his work in us. So let's look at what Paul says. What what are the blessings that Paul outlines for us in verses 3 to 14? Well, he bursts forth in this great poem of praise. And uh, before we actually look at what they are, let's think He says three things about God's blessings. One, he says, every spiritual blessing. You can see that in um, uh, in verse 3, yes. Uh, He blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, these spiritual blessings are what's going to come in the rest of the passage, so we're going to look at that. But the thing is, we already have them, every one of them. 
There is no spiritual blessing that you've missed out on. Some people pray for a spiritual blessing. According to Paul, you have them all. You, don't ha you didn't have to ask. He just gave them. Brilliant. Um, and he particularly praises God for the spiritual ones. Uh, um, that is, those that belong to our spiritual lives. They're the spiritual blessings. What God uses to give us spiritual health. To Paul, they are much more important than a new car or good health. They are life, actually. Second thing, they are enjoyed in the heavenly realms. You see that again in verse 3. Um, that's not a physical location. It doesn't mean in heaven, in the future. No, it points to the spiritual reality of God's people now. The words are, he has blessed us, not will bless us. If you are a Christian, you are joined to Jesus, who sits at God's right hand in heaven, and all the other Christians as God's people. Right now, if you've been rescued, saved by Jesus, you are with Jesus. Not just occupying space on earth, waiting for the great blessings of, of heaven. The blessings of heaven have been brought forward for you into the present. You enjoy those spiritual blessings now as if you're in the heavenly realms. And thirdly, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is at the centre of the whole passage. He's the reason for the blessings. Um, we can sometimes speak of a body riddled with cancer. This passage is riddled with Christ. He is everywhere. Uh, his name or his equivalent pronoun occurs 15 times in this passage. In Christ or in him occurs 11 times. All these blessings come through him. I'll have more to say about that uh, at the end. But then in verse 4, he says, for he chose us. He's now going to elaborate on what those spiritual blessings are. In other words, we know God has so richly blessed us because of what follows. So the first one is that we have been chosen. Isn't that a marvellous phrase? He chose us. We've been chosen by God to come into a relationship with him. Jesus said in John 15, you did not choose me, I chose you. And emphasise, look when we were chosen by God. We were chosen before the creation of the world. It's not that God looked at you once you were born and saw something in you that he thought, hmm, I'll choose her. No, it was before you were born. And you and I becoming Christians has nothing to do with us or any qualities in us. Ephesians 2 makes that clear. You stood no chance unless God had acted. The second blessing is that we have been predestined. He's chosen us, then he's predestined us. He decides beforehand who will receive his benefit. In this case, the benefit of being adopted as sons and daughters in his family. Now, I know that this doctrine of predestination or election is, is one of the most misunderstood, sometimes feared in the Bible. Let me just make three quick points. 
First one is, people often ask, how can I be predestined when I made a decision? And I think the answer to that is that you could not make a decision unless God had drawn you to himself first. Ephesians 2.1, go home and read that tonight. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your sins. Dead people can't make the decision to live again. It's not like somebody in a coffin can all of a sudden decide they want to be alive and get up and walk around. Impossible. If you are dead in your sins, you cannot make that decision to be alive again. The two things are really held in tension in the Bible. God draws me by making us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. That's in chapter 2. That's one side of it. But I'm aware of making a decision as well, and that's true. But having made the decision, I realise that it was God who chose me and did all the work in me. I can't claim any of the credit. The second thing is, election or predestination is really another name for grace. We love grace, don't we? (laughs) It's God's gift of the Lord Jesus, totally undeserved, given so that we could believe. The truth is, we all deserve judgment and hell. None of us deserve salvation or heaven. So if I deserve hell and I get salvation, how does that happen? Because God saw, uh, is it because God saw that I would make a decision for him in the future? That I would make a good Christian, a lovely servant of his? No. If that was the case, it would no longer be grace. That's exactly what what predestination is. It's grace at work. It's grace at work. And the third thing is, this is a doctrine for my comfort, not for my confusion. And that's because if God has chosen me, he will keep me. If I chose him, I'm worried about whether I'm good enough, whether I can hang on to him until the end. Being predestined gives me great assurance of salvation. He will hang on to you if he's chosen you. The third one is adoption as children. This shows that the purpose of election is relational. See, relations are at the very core of human existence, aren't they? Uh, How wonderful that, that God has previously determined that I would be part of his family, intimately related to him as my father, transformed from mere acquaintances into daughters with all the status and privilege that that implies in a human family and much more, the right to climb onto the creator's lap and snuggle him close and to call him Abba, Daddy. And that adoption has come through Jesus and his death. And it's all because of his good pleasure and will. It's his idea, it's his work, it's he, he is the credit. That's, you see that there in verse 5. Now the next two blessings are coupled Uh, In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, uh, in in the ancient world, uh, slaves could be rescued out of slavery by someone paying the debt that they owed, usually a relative. They would be redeemed. We have been bought with a price. Jesus' death is the price. That's a great cost. 
but we've been redeemed. And then we've been forgiven. Our sins no longer held against us, freed from the guilt, the consequences, the punishment, and now being restored into a relationship with God. And both of those come about as a result of God lavishing the riches of his grace upon us. That's what he does. Um, I came home one day to uh, the house where we were living uh, to find a man in our house who had broken in to steal whatever he could. And I found it in my husband's office. I was, for some reason, incredibly brave. <laughs> and um, so I had three options. I could go and call the police. That's what he deserved. He deserved to be arrested for breaking into our house and trying to steal. That would have been deserved. I could give him mercy uh, and just let him go. Or I could give him grace, that is, let him take what he wanted. Um, I did the second one. I let him go, told him to, to get out of there. Um, but that's a bit like us. We deserve hell. We deserve the punishment. But he lets us go, and that's mercy. But not only that, we get forgiveness and redemption and adoption. That's grace. And he lavishes it on us. I, I love that word, lavish. It's, um, he said there in verse 8, he, out of the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. It's an over-the-top word, isn't it? It's sort of like laid on thick and rich, like that creamy chocolate ganache that you get on top of a mud cake. Um, you're almost at the point where you can't describe the extravagant nature of God's giving. And it comes out of that phrase in verse 4, in love. You don't do that sort of thing unless you passionately love someone. God loves you passionately. He loves me passionately. And all these things are ours in Christ. You know, when, when you read through uh, this passage, the Lord Jesus is clearly at the centre of this passage. But we often have the impression, I know I used to, that Jesus is just God's plan B. You know, he reluctantly sent him from heaven when Israel and the Old Testament way of doing things failed. But in verses 9 to 13, he tells us quite the opposite. In verses 9 to 13, we get the great plan revealed. Uh, in these verses, we see that God's got a great and vast plan and that it's been revealed to us. Let me read you verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You know, um, uh, these two verses, and then um, even going down into verse, verse 11, uh, in him we've also been chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works us out, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. These three verses are shot through with purpose, planning, carrying out plans. Let's grab your pen and underline them um, as we go through. So let's look. Um, verse 4. For he chose us in him, chose, uh, 
And then in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption in accordance with his pleasure and will. So you've got chosen, we've got pleasure and will. Uh, Go down to verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Um, Look at verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Wow, it's just everywhere. This is God at work. He's planning. He's carrying it out. He's got a purpose. He's choosing. He's predestining. There's just shot through with purpose and planning. But what is the plan he's carrying out? And why is it previously a mystery? So it says there in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery. Well, look look in verse 9 where he says, according to his good pleasure, so he wanted to do something, he purposed in Christ, he planned it, he had a purpose. And then in verse 10, he put it into effect at the right time In other words, he's going to reveal it at the right time. You see, back in time, before the creation of the world, before human history began, God planned something magnificent. And then when he knew it was the right time, he unveiled it, swept back the curtain, and there it was. It's a bit like um, that dress that Kate Middleton wore when she married Prince William. I don't know if you remember, but there was so much mystery and secrecy about the dress. Who was going to be designer? What was it going to be like? Could we get a sneak preview? No. And as she came out of the hotel to get into the car, there was this big gazebo and tent side so you couldn't see. Before she got into the car, there were people standing around with umbrellas. I watched the YouTube video of it a couple of um, uh, last week. But then when she got out of the car at the cathedral, there it was. Because everyone had decided that was going to be the right time when it would be revealed. Not previously. That was going to be the time. And it was just uh, and, and it was just there. Meticulous planning. We knew it was coming, but we didn't know what it would be like. And then it was there. And so it is with God's plan. It's not something as ephemeral as a dress. But here it is what? To bring all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, verse 10. God's great plan before the beginning of time, what life actually is, was that all things, not just people, but the whole of creation and those in the heavenly realms, it says in heaven and on earth, will be brought together under Jesus, who will be their head, their master, Lord of all. Life actually is every knee bowing before Jesus submitting to him as Lord. The curtain is swept back to reveal Jesus in his full glory, a crucified Messiah, raised to life, ascended to heaven and crowned King and Lord of all. You know, in the Old Testament, the Jews had thought that one day a Messiah would come to be the king and make Israel great again. So not MAGA, make America great again, it's MIGA. Make Israel great again. That's what they wanted. We want Israel to be great again. 
But verses 11 to 13 tell us that the Gentiles were part of this plan too. The outsiders, not just the Jews, the no-hopers, those traditionally kept out by the Jews. Both racial groups, previously poles apart, are now included in God's plan of salvation and coming under Jesus' lordship. In other words, the whole of creation. And that has enormous implications for us as Gentiles. And I presume that most of us here, if not all of us, we would not be here if it weren't for this plan in Ephesians 1. He is king and lord over every person, every creature, every place, every nation, every kingdom, every corporation, every government, every leader, every project now existing and that will ever exist. He is king over all. And it was made known, it's always been God's plan to uh, to, to have this, but it's been progressively revealed bit by bit over the course of the Old Testament, but now it's been made known and it's been revealed in the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus. And when was the right time? There's a, there's a, it's already happened and still going to happen dimension going on here. You see, God revealed his plan concerning Jesus as Lord in the first century, uh, revealed him, risen, crucified, risen again. But we as Christians living in the 21st century now see him as Lord in our lives. We don't see him as uh, Lord over everybody else yet. But we look forward to the times reaching their fulfilment in the future when Jesus returns and every knee will bow. No one will mock him then or ignore him then. Everyone will acknowledge who he is and bow the knee. Every person attending the Mardi Gras and World Pride next week will bow the knee to Jesus one day. Everybody will. This is the great plan of the almighty creator who's our heavenly father. This is ultimate reality. This is life actually. It's not that you can see and touch it in the secular world around you. It's not what makes a splash in the media. It's not a a loving relationship with another person. It's not what makes you or anybody else happy. The reality of life is that all of life revolves around this one great truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no other part of life, there is no part of life that doesn't come under the Lordship of Jesus. There was a letter in our local paper a couple of years ago after the Anzac Day commemoration, and this is what it said. It was a great shame that a Christian minister used the terrible Anzac Day dawn service to push his own barrow. Those of a religious persuasion need to be reminded that Anzac Day is not about Jesus Christ. It's not about God. It's not about Christianity or religion. Now, in one sense, I can see what he's getting at. We want to clearly remember those who've given their lives in the cause of peace for our country. But in another sense... Anzac Day and politics and marriages and education and economics is about Jesus because he is the Lord of life. It is about Jesus. Okay, why has he done this? Look at verses 6 and 12 and 14. He has done this, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12 
in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and then the very last phrase, to the praise of his glory. Has he done this so that we will make much of ourselves? Look at what God has done for me. No. (laughs) So that we will make much of him. It's for the praise of his glory. It's for the sake of his reputation. So that people will know that his will know about his holiness and his greatness. The world will know that he is Lord. It is that God gets the glory. Why are you a Christian? Why were you saved? God does not save you or me so that we can be happy. He does not save us so that we can be contented. He does not save us so that we can be blessed. He does not save us so that we can get to heaven. All of those things will happen. But if they were the reasons, then the spotlight would be on us. The spotlight is on God and the Lord Jesus. It is for their sake that God has saved us so that people who do not know him will see that he is great. So the big takeaway from this talk is, from this passage is, life is not about me. Life is not about you. Life is all about him. It's all about Jesus. So just quickly, how are we going to respond to to this passage? What What are some of the things that we can think about? Ephesians 1 has shown us that this initiative is from God. The world as a whole is doomed. People are dead in their relationship with God. And God takes the initiative. He sets in train his plan. He wills, he chooses, he elects, he predestines, he redeems, he forgives, he adopts all through the work of Jesus. And he makes Jesus the centre of all of life. So what do we do in response to that? Well, I think that we thank and we praise him. Thank God that he saved you even though you didn't deserve it. And thank God that because you're in Christ, he's given you every spiritual blessing. You do not need to batter down the doors of heaven to wring from God some extra spiritual blessing you feel you do not have. You have it all now. What you do need to do is deepen your understanding of what you already have. And thankfulness will make you burst out in praise of this great God. Secondly, life choices. Verse 4 says that we were chosen to be holy and blameless. It's not a duty, it's a privilege. To be holy means to be set apart for a particular purpose. Um, I mentioned that uh, I'm, a, I'm a dressmaker or sewer at home. And so in, in our house, I've got lots of pairs of scissors. I've got scissors that I cut my husband's hair with. I've got scissors that I use for cutting craft and paper. I've got kid scissors. I've got scissors down in the garage that we'll cut a piece of rope with. And then I have my sewing scissors. And my sewing scissors are holy. They're for one purpose, and one purpose only, for cutting material. My son one day took it to cut some rope. I nearly throttled him. Um, But that's because he had used it for a purpose that it was not designed for. And so you and I were made for a purpose, one purpose, to bring glory to him. We're not made for other purposes. We were made to bring glory to him. He's taken you and rescued you and set you apart. 
for a purpose, that you should live in a way that you stand out for his glory and for his praise because Jesus is your Lord. Jesus' lordship is radical. It's selfless. It's loving. It's forgiving. It's generous. It's gracious. All of the world is not. Um, There's a verse in 1 Peter that says, In your hearts set apart Jesus as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Why don't people ever ask us for the hope that we have? Is it because they don't see it in our lives that we look like everyone else, hope in the same things that everybody else hopes in, fall to pieces pieces when trouble hits, just like they do? Do we have ambitions for our kids that are just like theirs? Do we gossip at the school gate or in the office lunchroom just like they do? If that's the case, then we are failing to live for the purpose for which we were saved. And lastly, oh no, two more. His word will be central. You know, um, his word is central for two reasons. One, we only know about this plan and this radical lordship because of the scriptures. Without this, this book, of which Ephesians is part, we would be in the dark. But God out of his grace, has kindly revealed his plans to us and he's given us his word. The scriptures are where we'll deepen our understanding of all those spiritual blessings we already have. You know, the, the, the Dalai Lama, uh, the Dalai Lama uh, visited Australia um, to speak at a thing called the Happiness Conference. He's described as a living God, as you know. And he said this, the secret of happiness was nine hours sleep. At the end of the article, there was this. Finally, a desperate roar from the crowd implored him to impart one final pearl of wisdom. And this is what he said. To carry on continuously, that's all. That's inane and vacuous. That's terrible. Compare that to what we've studied today. The word of God is rich and deep and makes sense. Not that other stuff. Read it, meditate it, study it. And then lastly, be part of the plan. You know, God's plan is vast and magnificent. It is from eternity to eternity. It was formulated back in eternity before time began and will come to fruition and culmination in eternity, the other side of history, when Jesus returns. It is that all will come under the lordship of Jesus. All people will eventually bow the knee, whether in this life, as they commit their life to Jesus, or when they encounter Judge Jesus seconds after their death, or when Jesus returns. In the last two instances, it will be too late. And the reason that God delays the return of Jesus is that he passionately loves his creation and delights for them to turn to him and place themselves under God's lordship. And that's where you and I become part of the plan. God graciously invites us to partner with him in proclaiming the good news of his plan for the world. God's heart is for lost people. Do we have the same heart? Do we fervently pray that our friends and relatives who are far from God will come to know him? And that that's more important than getting married or having kids or getting a job or being healed from some life-threatening disease or being happy. Hearing the gospel and coming to know Jesus 
has eternal consequences. Are we able to speak winsomely about Jesus when those opportunities arise? If someone says to you, why are you a Christian? Can you answer them with a a short, attractive, personal story? The answers to those questions will determine if you are part of God's plan, the plan that is life actually. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you so much for this amazing passage in Ephesians. Thank you that you set out so clearly here what life is all about. Help us, Father, not to be sidetracked by the things that can uh, make us want to uh, follow other things in in this world, can, uh, can consume us, can take our attention. We pray that we will be focused on the blessings that you have blessed us with and that those things show us that we need to live for you, that we need to be holy and purposeful in looking to you as the author of life. We pray that you will, we will have you as Lord. We pray that we'll seek to see those people around us acknowledge Jesus as Lord, for that is what life is all about. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oops.